kindergarten, every kid's going to speak to a hundred people three times. They're going to design websites. They're going to learn to code. They're going to have over a hundred micro credentials by the end of fifth grade that involves everything from laser cutting to CNC routers, uh, you know, to Google suites. And so then in middle school, we present them with problems that they can use those micro credentials to solve. And then in high school, they find the problems and apply the skills. In 2022, national average test scores in reading and math both declined to the lowest levels in decades. While most of the commentary instills concern, even fear, over the current state of education, innovative educators are changing the narrative. The pandemic, they say, is actually a rare opportunity for schools to reform. How can schools be reinvented to get students excited about learning? What is innovative teaching and what are some examples of innovative teaching models? What do students want out of schools and how do they want to be supported in their education? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Dr. Buddy Berry to find out. Dr. Buddy Berry is the superintendent of Eminence Independent Schools in Kentucky. Currently in his 13th year as superintendent, he has put eminence on the map with its innovative model for education. Passionate for reinventing the K-12 school experience, Dr. Berry's school on fire model has seen dramatic results in the past decade. He joins us today to discuss the framework of innovation for reinventing education and how innovative teaching can create schools where kids are truly learning and enjoying the process. Buddy, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Been excited about getting to talk with you. So I want to first talk about um, your hometown, your area, uh, Eminence Independent School District is located in Kentucky. And for our listeners out there, uh, share a little bit about, you know, where it's located, the population, the uh, amount of students in the school district, just so they can understand where you're located. Well, we're we're right in the middle. Like if we live in central Kentucky, we're as about as central as you get. Uh, and so we're about 30 minutes from just outside of Louisville, uh, rural community, one stoplight, one McDonald's, uh, about 3,000 people that live here. Student body is about, uh, it's doubled in the last five years in enrollment. So we're right at a thousand students, uh, K-12, one campus. Um, and then we also have, uh, you know, about 75% free and reduced lunch, about uh, 12 to 15% homeless, one of the highest homeless populations in the state. You've done some really amazing things to help kids and families in need. But beforehand, uh, I'm sensing that part of your work was grounded in your experience that you're a fourth generation uh, native. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, fourth generation uh, on my dad's side, third generation on my mom's side. And uh, you ended up going to school and, um, and your superintendent in your hometown. One question I want to ask you, with the work that you've done, uh, oftentimes people from small towns they end up leaving. Why did you decide to stay? So I, I did actually spend the first uh, 10 or 12 years of my career outside of Eminence. And so kind of did go to actually one of the most uh, rural areas of Kentucky and then also one of the most urban. And so kind of brought both of those experiences back 
home, uh, came back home when my oldest child, I have four kids, uh, Brooke, Blaze, Bryce, and Brax. And when Brooke was starting kindergarten, uh, I came back to work here, gave up an administrator's job to be a high school math teacher in eminence uh, because I wanted Brooke to, to be here. When you came back, and this is your 13th year, as I understand it, as superintendent, um, you made the statement that you wanted to create dream schools. You wanted eminence to be the Disney of schools. So starting with that very beginning vision, what made you land with those descriptions? Disney kind of embodied creativity and passion and, uh, you know, design. And so we wanted to create a school that was fun and engaging, you know, that it was personalized, that it created unique learning experiences. You know, the, the, the one thing about Disney is if you go there, uh, you know, you, 85 to 90% of your time, you're sort of miserable. Uh, it's expensive. <laughs> it's very hot. Uh, there are long lines. But what Disney does better than anybody else is they create a few magical moments each day. And then as soon as you get back home, you're like, I got to go back because you want those magical moments again. And so we wanted to create a school where kids wanted to come back. So where every minute of every day might not be this magical dream place, but there were enough of those moments those meaningful uh, moments where kids wanted to be at school. You know, we ask our staff all the time, are kids running to your class or are they running from your class? We want every kid to want to be here. We want them to want to, we don't want them to want to go home at the end of the day. And so we felt like Disney was kind of a good way to kind of sum up uh, what all that looked like. And, you know, dating back to when our model, our model's called the School on Fire. Yes. It's a framework of innovation for reinventing education. And so when we started that uh, now 12 years ago, um, you know, it was it was this such a novel idea that we needed to connect to something that was a little more grounded and people had a better idea of what it looked like. I actually love that reference of, uh, you know, of Disney. And I remember taking my sons there for the first time and I hadn't really thought of. But you're right. So much of your time there is miserable, waiting in lines, you're paying <laughs> a lot of money. I never thought of the fact that it's those magic moments. So when you started this school on fire and this Disney of schools, uh, and you, you made reference to you, you, what, talking with your teachers, running away from something, running to something, what were some of the things that school children in eminence were running from that you wanted to counter with this new approach? Yeah, uh, to be totally honest, um, I don't know how much our diploma meant 12 to 15 years ago. You know, we were seeing decreasing enrollment. Uh, 10% of our population was decreasing every year. Uh, finances were bad. You know, I think it was making our diploma mean something. Like, hmm. so that when you had an eminence diploma, that it, it embodied a world-class, well-rounded education. And so, you know, we are heavily first-generation college students. And so we weren't seeing it translate to degrees or post-secondary success. And so, so it really was about defining new terms for what success were and could be. And so I, th I think because I had never had any formal experience as a leader, we just tackled the whole system. We just kind of reinvented school from the ground up because we didn't know we couldn't. And so uh, fast forward 12 years and, and our team has really had a lot of success and became, you know, really a national model of innovation and personalization. And you call that the framework of innovation for reinventing education. And what exactly does that mean? Walk me through some of the steps that you've undertaken to reinvent education. 
what's the first step in creating a dream schools that kids are excited about? You got to talk to kids. And so we, we interviewed every student in the district. So we were smaller then, uh, but we interviewed every one of them uh, to see what they wanted in school, what they didn't want school, what they didn't like about school. And, you know, when you did that, we found out that kids were bored. Um, they were lacking choice and they they wanted more technology. And so we became the first district in Kentucky to be one-to-one. Uh, we created an early college program partnering with Bellarmine University where kids can go to college as early as sophomore year. Uh, they can graduate with two full years free, which is the equivalency of about $110,000 worth of free uh, private college. Um, you know, And so again, those opportunities are things that have created. The reason why we gave it a name like the School on Fire, we didn't want it to just be about a new initiative initiative or a new program. We wanted it to be about a total culture change and a, mm-hmm. and a total driving force. And so we've seen a lot of uh, successes. We think we're the first in America. We think we invented the Wi-Fi school bus. Um, we, you know, the early college program was one of the first of its kind, if not the first, definitely the first in Kentucky. Uh, and so there are things like that, that we've really implemented and employed uh, in, in terms of also passion-based learning, uh, doing uh, applied uh, uh uh, personalization to their interests, their skills, their hobbies. And then probably the the single most uh, innovative thing I think that we've done is we were one of the early adopters in America, probably first 2% of schools to have a graduate profile. But the game changer was Eminence became the first school in America to then create standards to go with that graduate profile so that we know that in kindergarten, every kid's going to speak to 100 people three times. They're going to design websites. They're going to learn to code. They're going to have over a hundred micro credentials by the end of fifth grade that involves everything from laser cutting to CNC routers, uh, you know, to Google suites. And so then in middle school, we present them with problems that they can use those micro credentials to solve. And then in high school, they find the problems and apply the skills. But if with these exemplars, we know that every kid is going to have over 30 in-depth college and career explorations, and they're going to do philanthropy. They're going to do passion-based projects. Like we, we build that into the curriculum. Curriculum, and we considered equally important to math, science, social studies, and, and English. So I will say, wow. And when I read about your work, I said, wow. Uh, and Thank what's you. interesting is that so much of what you're doing is rooted in personalized learning. How did you get, you get your teachers to buy into this total personalization approach for every child so that you could do the things you're talking about, creating those standards and profiles for kids starting as early as kindergarten. Yeah. You know, early on, it, it was very intimidating and daunting for staff, um, but we kept kids at the center of it. So it was all about focusing on what's best for kids and and using testimonies and stories of children uh, as we got successes along the way. By putting the kid at the heart of it, you're willing to find, A, the people that are very kid focused, and those people stuck with us uh, and really lived through these changes. I, I recall one teacher that actually was the last teacher teacher that I had had from eminent schools. Um, she taught kindergarten. She was in year 35. She was beyond retirement age and we launched the school on fire and she came up to me and she said, buddy, this is the most excited I've been about teaching in my career. Do you mind if I stay on? She, she was making about $8 a day difference between her retirement and her teacher salary, but she was so energized from the work that we were doing. Now that you're in your, you know, well over 10 years of doing this, how have you been able to maintain the consistency and the continuity 
I'm, I'm imagining that you still have to train and retrain new teachers to come in the system. You have to develop the right partnerships to keep some of the technology programs going. Talk about the process of keeping this going. That's a great question. What I will say is, is after 10 years, we really have taken on a systemic approach where it's replicable. Uh, and so we've now seen our model in probably uh, there's over probably eight to nine million students in America that are using aspects of our model, uh, either through direct consultation or visiting or trainings that we've led. And so we're really seeing it spread, so to speak, like a fire. Uh, and and so it's creating those systems of replicable. Uh, of, of making it replicable that have really, you know, kept the work going. And see, that's what I wanted to talk to you about, buddy. You know, this is one of the real questions I had because, you know, I've been fortunate to visit hundreds, maybe thousands of schools all over the world. And I always find these little kernels or nuggets of success or examples of personalized learning here and there. But every time it seems as if a large school district wants to try to do something, they get swallowed up by the bureaucracy or the superintendent du jour. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but a, a new superintendent has to deal with the school board and they get run out. How do you create this change? You said that there are eight to 10 million students that are benefiting from some aspects of your model. How do you build it to scale? You know, you started with a small school district, but how does a large school district our largest school district, you know, the Louisville's, the New York's, the L.A. How do you get sure. it to the point where it is more uh, immersed in the day to day? Well, you're going to have to have a commitment level to pull it off. Right. So, I mean, because it's much easier to just take the status quo, serve your four year stint of a large district. Average time of a superintendent in those districts is less than three years. And so just kind of bide your time and, and put out fires, um, you know, instead of putting out fires, though it's time to start starting fires. Mm. And, and I think teachers are desperate uh, for, for something meaningful. I think students are desperate for something meaningful, you know, and, and it's constantly trying to evolve that work. What we're seeing, you know, there's a teacher crisis everywhere uh, in terms of a shortage of, of even finding qualified staff and eminence is staying fully staffed partially due to our size, but I think in great part due to the the vision, like our vision trumps everything else. Uh, and so, you know, we, I, I think if these big districts would sell out on a vision uh, rather than, than what, you know, just trying to keep that status quo, so to speak, I really think the ones that are doing that are, are, are able to see it be successful and implementation occur at a broad scale. What recommendations do you give them on where to start, how to start? I would start with the, creating a solid graduate profile uh, that is created at a district level via corporate partnerships, chamber of commerce, parents, teachers, students. I would start with that. I think it's the the heartbeat of what we do hmm. uh, for creating a 21st century school. And then I think the second step of that is how do you know that it's successfully being implemented? And that leads to the, what we call exemplars or creating standards. Um, the third aspect of that is really creating, creating teacher and student ownership. And so how do you do that? Well, you really start to remove some of the bureaucracy, you know, you know, hire great teachers and allow them to do great things uh, rather than handing out a script that they should read so that every kid gets the exact same thing every day. Realize that education is messy and that it's hard, but man, when it, when it's done right, there's no more meaningful job in America.
It really comes down to some of the basics in terms of interacting with kids, you know, seeking their advice, working with them as and as as well as the adult staff. Uh, how do you find engaging today's students uh, in this sort of complex, you know, global world that we're living in? Yeah, I think part of it is it's the toughest time ever because kids have something in their pockets that connects them to all information that has ever existed. And so they're no longer just taking a teacher's word for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it really changes um, how students learn and what they should learn. Now it's not who knows the most. It's who knows how to do the most with what they know. And, wow. and that's a seismic shift in terms of schools and educators. And it really resonated with me when I heard it. One of the things that you have your students do, and this been part of the, I guess, DNA of Schools on Fire, is philanthropy work. And oftentimes, many superintendents uh, in many schools don't necessarily focus on that. Talk about this notion of giving back and how that is one of the centerpieces of your work. Well, it goes hand in hand with one of our core beliefs, and, and that is if you can help somebody to do something that they think is impossible. So if you can help a student or staff member to pull off something that in their own minds they really believe is impossible to pull off and you make it possible, it changes who they are. Like it it changes their like how they're structured, how they think because then if they pull off the impossible one time, they start to think, well what else is it that isn't possible? And so philanthropy works kind of side by side with that mindset, which is I think Every kid that we've ever seen do outreach or philanthropy or, or start to use empathy in a powerful way, like those kids are changed forever because they can't help but be. Um, it, it starts to, they start to feel those feelings of uh, something bigger than themselves uh, and they start seeing the world kind of for just what it is. I have one last question. It really relates to what you just alluded to. And again, thinking in terms of some of these superintendents or other folks out here who are considering change and trying to navigate change, I think that one of the most important things uh, that leads to meaningful change is trust. That you get the students' trust, you get the teachers' trust, you get the community's trust. What advice would you give to school leaders who are embarking on this big change effort uh, in terms of building trust? within the school communities, within the student body, within the staff? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I, I, I think you have to just be a person of integrity. I think that uh, teachers and kids and the community, they can see through edu speak. And so when things have been bad here, we said they were bad here. When things were great here, we said they were great here. Um, and, and the one thing that we have always believed in, there are no perfect schools. So, so there is nowhere in America that's perfect. And so all we pledge to do is, is to fix what broke. And so we have such an open door policy that, I, you know, even today I've received four phone calls with people that are calling the superintendent over minute things that that would never fall in the superintendent's lap. But at the same time, it's because they know that we'll try to fix it. And so we've created an atmosphere of seeing a problem and solving a problem. And so I think that's critical. I think also critical is to is to know that it takes an entire team. So while we've been extremely successful, it is not because of me. It's because because of, you know, the 150 staff members 
numbers and the 950 to 1,000 students working side by side uh, really to set out and try to do the impossible together. And honestly, one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. Dr. Buddy Barry, thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education. And write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag W-I-W-T-K. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.